This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 342, July the 5th, 1995. In this session, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, and I will continue to interview Sam Blumenfeld on the subject of education. As I stated in the previous session, Sam is an authority on phonics and on homeschooling and has lectured on the subjects here and abroad. Would you like to take over and uh, guide us into another area of investigation or continue whatever you were dealing with? Well, there is the um, <clears throat> an area of interest that uh, many parents are concerned about, and that is this business of learning disabilities. Uh, uh, reading disability, attention deficit disorder. It's an interesting uh, notion that children, you know, would have a deficit in attention. <laughs> and it's easy to figure out. <clears throat> if you look at what's being done in the schools in the first three grades, particularly in the, uh, um, with, the, with the three R's in the primary school, you realize they're doing everything in reverse now. Uh, they're no longer teaching the letter sounds before they teach words, so they do every, they do that in reverse. The children are exposed to a very uh, illogical way of teaching reading. They're then taught a very illogical way of writing because they're taught to print first, and then then they're expected to uh, write cursive in the third grade. Many of them don't make a good transition because if you spend two years printing, you may develop habits that make it impossible to develop a good cursive. In arithmetic, they've done the same thing. They're teaching concepts between, before they even teach the facts, and now they say that it's no longer necessary to memorize the arithmetic facts. That, Of course, there's this, uh, this great... Uh, deprecation of rote learning as being some horrible form of torture, you see. Whereas rote learning is really is the, is the easiest way to learn anything, and that's the way we certainly learned arithmetic. So you've got this reversal going on, and it's very illogical. And so when children develop attention deficit disorder, what it's telling us is that children do not want to pay attention to nonsense. In other words, they don't want their minds to be harmed by the illogic of what is being taught in the classroom. Uh, because children come to school with a very logical minds. Uh, they teach themselves to speak their own language all by themselves. As a matter of fact, the Lord has programmed us all with the language faculty. He has programmed us with a grammatical sense because when children learn to speak, they speak grammatically. They don't speak ungrammatically. They, it's, it's normal for them to learn to speak grammatically because they've got a logical mind. God has given us logic software. He's given us a logical mind. Now, when that logical mind then confronts the illogic, the insanity of what presently goes on in the primary school, and particularly in kindergarten and first grade, 
the child develops what is called attention deficit disorder. What does that mean? The child simply refuses to pay attention to what he, he instinctively feels is illogical. And he's trying to defend himself against it. Now, how do, can a child defend himself against what he would, the, the illogic that is trying to damage his brain? Well, I, I, I'll pose a situation to you. Supposing you were locked in a room and had to listen to heavy metal music for six hours, and you knew that it would rattle your nerves, that you couldn't stand it, how would you defend yourself? What would you do? You try to shut it out of your, you. You wouldn't pay attention to it, that's for sure, would you? You try to shut it out of your ears. You would do something that would nullify the racket that was going on. Well, these children are doing something quite similar. They are trying to nullify the uh, this damaging uh, stimuli, because you know that's how the educators look at things as stimulus and response. That's the behavioral uh, technique, stimulus response, SR. And so the only way that they can defend themselves is by developing this attention deficit disorder. Now, what is what are the how do the uh, educators solve the problem? Well, they just drug the kids. Ritalin is now being used all over this country. There are some elementary classrooms in which 50% of the kids, as many as 50%, are on Ritalin. Prozac now is being used as one of the drugs. Thorazine. All of these uh, drugs are being used to uh, enable them to control the children so that their minds will be susceptible to this illogical nonsense so that it'll be easier to destroy their minds by destroying their defenses against this illogic. I haven't heard anyone make the connection yet, but uh, wouldn't it be uh, uh, feasible to say that uh, teen alcoholism and possibly teen use of uh, drugs is simply their attempt to shut this out. They're anesthetizing themselves. Well, once they, you know, once they can't read, once they've been, uh, once their minds have been destroyed or badly damaged, uh, it's, it's easier to fall prey to uh, teen pressure and to get into drugs and alcohol because that's the thing to do. That's what teenage pressure is all about. That's why that sort of socialization is so destructive because in addition to the destruction that's going on on the academic level, you now have this social destruction. And it's very difficult uh, difficult for kids to uh, defend themselves against these, uh, these uh, terrible influences. We have the great irony that the educators become angry at the at the results that their very policies established in the first place. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but but uh, but as you know, they know how to uh, how to manage things. First of all, you have to understand that education today is not in the hands of what you would call true uh, teachers or true educators. Uh, it's in the hands of psychologists. Mm-hmm. The system now is controlled lock, stock, and barrel from bottom to top by behavioral psychologists or third force psychologists, whatever you want to call it, but they're basically psychologists and it started way back in the early part of the century with uh, G. Stanley Hall and uh, John Dewey, 
and uh, Watson, John B. Watson, uh, of whom Rush writes in his book, The the, uh, Messianic Character of American Education. As a matter of fact, in that book you'll find wonderful uh, short biographical studies of all of these individuals. And I think, Rush, of, of all of those individuals that you studied in that book, how many were Christians who remained Christians? Just one of the early yeah. uh, men. I believe Harris was his name. William Torrey Harris? Yes. He was a Hegelian, actually. True, but he still had uh, a nominal uh, Christian connection. I see, I see. But in any case, most of them were humanists, or all of them were virtually humanists or Unitarians. Or, uh, and uh, and so they, they, they turned American education from a truly... Uh, uh, place where you learned to a place where you were transformed, where you were worked on, where you were given therapy. Uh, when Rush and I went to school, the, the teachers were not interested in our feelings or our beliefs or our values. They wanted to add to what we brought from home. They wanted to make us literate. And, and of course, we respected them and we loved them because they were doing the right thing by us. They were giving us something which our parents were not giving us, and certainly they were not doing anything that would harm our relationship with our parents or would uh, change our values or change our beliefs. Today, the whole purpose of public education is to uh, reorganize the belief system of the child. And so it's a tool of social engineering also, clearly. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a tool of social engineering. One of the problems parents whose children are put on Ritalin face is that if they protest, they are put down as very dangerous uh, parents, social uh, reactionaries and uh, implicit fascists. Yeah, another interesting point about public education is the compulsory aspect of it, compulsory school attendance. Uh, The first compulsory school attendance law was passed in Massachusetts in the 1850s. And prior to that, 96% of the children were attending school without any problem. You didn't have to force parents to send their children to school. It was... In, especially in America, where education was considered absolutely uh, vital, uh, and certainly literacy was a, a very high on the list because of the need for biblical literacy. So parents had no objection to sending their kids to school, and the few kids who were uh, who were truant uh, were out there, and and it was the. Uh, the Unitarians who decided that it was wrong for that small group of truants not to be in the schools because they said they're going to be the delinquents, the criminals of tomorrow. And so they enacted these laws, and now they're, you know, uh, universal in the United States, these compulsory school attendance laws, and they're always being expanded. They're always expanding the the beginning uh, stage, you know. Now I believe they want to go as, as early as three years old, if they'd like to, if they can do it. And they're going all the way up to 18 to keep these kids in school forever. Yeah. And separating them from the productive economy, except when these kids want to get jobs. But you have more kids on the streets today 
who have been expelled from schools than you ever had before these laws were passed simply because they can't handle them. Kansas City is a good case in point. They just announced on the radio today that of the graduating class was very small from the high schools in Kansas City because 60% of the kids had dropped out. Well, and the reason why they drop out is quite understandable. By the time the kids are in the 6th and 7th grades, they realize they're not learning anything. They realize it is a total waste of time, of their time. And they'd rather be out in the world getting a job because I, I remember when I was substitute teaching in Quincy, Massachusetts, I was dealing with a group of kids who were dropouts. And this was an English class, and we were reading uh, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Now, the, the courts had ordered these kids in the schools, assuming that they're going to do something worthwhile. But all they were doing was reading a novel, which of, of no great interest to them. And it was a waste of their time. They could have been out earning a living, you see. Uh, for example, in some states, they want to deny kids uh, driver's licenses if they drop out, saying that you, you have to stay and you can't get a driver's license. Well, these kids need the license in order to go to work. They're out there in the world. And the judge is not at all concerned with what they do in the school when they're forced to be back in the school. Well, Sam, is there a connection between the unusually high teen suicide rate in this country and uh, this... Uh, uh, destruction of the minds of kids. And oh, parents. absolutely! Because one of the uh, one of the the, the courses that the, or, or that the psychologists have put into education is known as death education, in which the kids are uh, required to write their own obituaries, their own uh, epitaphs. Uh, they talk about death a great deal. They visit funeral homes, funeral parlors. As a matter of fact, one of the TV programs, I think it was 2020, actually did a piece on death education uh, uh, through some uh, influence of, of uh, friends of mine. And they had the camera follow these kids into this funeral home, which is part of their death education program. And the, the mortician brought them into the room where they were embalming, you know, uh, corpses. And there was this one corpse under a, uh, under a sheet, but his toe was sticking out. And he asked if any of the kids would like to touch the toe, just to see what it feels like to touch a dead person. And then he took them into the uh, crematorium, oh. And he opened the little door, and there were some ashes there, and he sh took a little shovel, and he asked them if they'd like to touch the ashes. Mm. Well, some kids were daring enough, but you, there were other kids who were standing against the wall who looked as if they were about to pass out. I mean, that's the sort of thing that goes on in American schools today. So this, this uh, preoccupation, this, this focus on death, is as Rush has pointed out that humanism Humanist education is uh, is uh, teaches a love of death. Mm -hmm. You see, absolutely. Yeah. That he, they who hate me, love, love death. death. That's you right. See. You see. Sam, you're completing a book uh, dealing with this goals 2000 OBE. It goes under different names. Would you just take some time, maybe, to discuss that and the threat that this poses to? Uh, 
education in this country? Well, the, the book is entitled The uh, Whole Language OBE Fraud. And what I've done is I've gone through the, uh, the history of the whole reading problem, beginning way back with Dewey and the rest of them, and bringing it up into the present time with whole language, which is a, a new development of this whole word method, uh, with uh, very, uh, very uh, strong deconstructionist uh, elements in it now. Uh, we've uh, we've all heard of deconstructionism, you know, that is taking apart a text and and, and uh, making it meaningless because words are supposed to not have meaning. And how philosophers are able to just uh, say that and actually write about it and expect us to understand what they mean is sort of a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Uh, and now they've applied it to uh, primary teaching to the teaching of reading. They've told the kids that now, uh, uh, youngsters, kids, don't read the text for its accuracy, for what the writer writes. Read it for what you think it should say, you see. Yes. And, and they call it, you know, creative. You create your meaning. You don't retrieve meaning from the text, but you create your own meaning. And of course, that opens the doors to such an incredible lunacy. Uh, and the kids are being taught that way to substitute words, to you know, edit the thing, to interpret it, because they claim that there are no absolute meanings to anything. Well, we have a Supreme Court that's been doing that for a number of years, don't we? <laughs> you were right in, in a sense. But this whole this whole business of relativism—that nothing is absolute—is part of the philosophical drive to destroy. You know, the sense of absolutism which is the word of God and the Bible and of course that's our and that's what America is based on it's based on scripture it's based on absolutism and I think what has happened is that the, the philosophers have reached a dead end and Wittgenstein more or less realized that that, they, that modern philosophy had reached a dead end they had to now deal with meaning with words, with language, and if they could destroy that, then there was no, nothing else to do. Then you would just go back to pre-literate times, which is what? Barbarism. Total, right. complete, you know, caveman barbarism. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is so contrary to the needs of a technological civilization that how can you have an education system that is using barbarism as its as its basic uh, view of language, this this preliterate sense, and 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 keep a civilization like this going. Well, you know, Derrida has argued against this what he calls logocentrism, right. the idea of a logic-centered view of uh, of meaning, and really the opposite is a bar. Uh, right, right. You, you make up your own language, you make up your yeah. own meaning. What kind of a society can you have? I think they're just totally destructive of this system. Nihilists, uh, yes. yes. I was using in some writing I was doing for the report a book today, a book without words, pictures by a professor of art. Not a one of the pictures had any meaning to it. They were all meaningless scribbles. And uh, the back cover of the book, 
One prominent uh, contemporary observer said that this man's art represented the universe because the universe has no meaning. Therefore, if you portray a meaningless art, you are accurately portraying the universe around us. Yes. Now, given that factor, sooner or later they're going to have to say, why education? Why not prepare children for nothing but a life of pleasure? That's right, right. They are already doing that in a great deal of what they are teaching them. Oh, sure. So, little by little, they're going to reduce all children to the level of mindless Polynesians who are interested only in pleasure and have no morality. Just a pure hedonism. A pure hedonism, yes. Mm. Well, that's exactly what we're getting. Yeah, uh, children who have no sense of what it is to go out into the world and to work for a living. Although you, I'll tell you, you know, uh, the human race is not as easy to destroy as the liberals and the deconstructionists would like to uh, no. accomplish. That's a common common race. Because I'm, I'm, I'm always astounded at the number of kids who come out of public schools with their heads still screwed on all right, you know, and who go out and get jobs and, yes. and do whatever they have to do. It's a shame that so much of their time has been wasted uh, in these schools that teach nothing, but they have to really educate themselves, you see, when they get out of these uh, these public schools. And then, of course, you, you can't ignore the fact that there are some decent teachers throughout the public school system. The system is big enough so that there are many teachers there who do their work quietly, who are decent human beings, Christians, who try to do a decent job and do influence some kids in a positive way. So, uh, because they can't get rid of all the good teachers, they can't get rid of all of the Christians. And, uh, but my point is that, is that you, you take an awful chance when you put a child in a public school because you don't know what you're going to get. You're playing a sort of Russian roulette. Yes. There's uh, a very high percentage of teachers that send their own kids to, yeah, to private, private schools. schools. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's so illogical. Back in the Cold War, would we have wanted to have sent our children to be educated by communists? You know, in Russia, we would say, oh, no, and yet, why would Christians want to turn their children over to the enemy, people who yeah. are ideologically opposed to the faith? Well, it yeah. just doesn't make any sense. You know, the ironic thing about uh, the teaching of reading is that in Russia, they don't have such a thing as... Uh, or in the communist countries, they don't have such a thing as, as dyslexia or reading disability because they have used intensive phonics to teach reading in the Soviet bloc. Now, how did that happen? Well, early in the revolution, after the revolution, uh, Krupskaya, Lenin's wife, was greatly influenced by John Dewey, and she put in the look-same method and the Dewey program in the schools of Russia and it created such uh, learning problems, so much illiteracy, that the Central Committee of the Communist Party in 1932 made a complete reversal. They threw out the Dewey program and they reinstituted a strong phonetic method of teaching reading. And also they went back to subject matter. 
And as a result, they produced engineers and, and uh, uh, you know, and scientists who were able to do, even under this, that kind of Stalinist regime, were able to build this huge, you know, industrial machine that uh, uh, exists in the Soviet Union. Now, they didn't have freedom, but they knew how to read. And the only way that they could be prevented from reading the books they wanted was through censorship. Now, our educators in 1932 were very much aware of the experiment that failed in Russia. They knew that it had, been, it had produced the kind of results that forced the Communist Party to reverse itself. And yet, they proceeded to, to inflict American children, to impose on American children the very system of education which the Soviets had thrown out. And this was written about in American publications, their disappointment in the Soviet Union. And, our, and critics on our side um, also pointed out that, hey, it's failed. Why are we doing it here? Why are we going to put it in here? And, and all of that has been forgotten now. Nobody thinks about that. Nobody knows about it. Well, it's in my book. And I quote all of these uh, various uh, professors and writers who knew what was going on there. And, and so the story is revealed for all to read. And it points out that, uh, that this method of teaching does cause these problems and that our educators decided to keep these in the school, in the schools deliberately because they wanted to transform this country into whatever their image was of a, of, a, of a socialist society. And this is part of the impetus behind the goals 2000 and OBE too, is that not yes. correct? Oh yes, yes. Outcome-based education is simply, the uh, simply ch uh, turns American public schools into humanist parochial schools because the outcomes are humanist outcomes. And part of that program is to reorganize the mentality of the young people so that they will become humanists. Uh, you know, when people say, well, what's wrong with outcomes? There's nothing wrong with outcomes. I mean, Christian schools have outcomes. Catholics, the outcome of a Catholic school is supposed to be a good Catholic, you know, who, who can read and write. The outcomes that the humanists want, of course, are humanistic outcomes. And as you know, humanism is a religion. It's yes. not merely a, a philosophy. It, it is a religion. And uh, there is, um, among humanists, this uh, dispute over whether humanism is a religion or whether it's anti-religion, non-religion. But even atheism is a religion. Wouldn't yes. you say that, Rush, that atheism Very is a mm -hmm. is a, is a religious yes. uh, view? Religion, in most cases, is not a belief in God. It is a belief in man, in spirits, in forces, but uh, most religions are not theistic. So that would explain it, you know. So even the even the atheist humanists who claim that they are not religious, they just don't like the word religion because it's got the connotation of of uh, theism and also of belief in in, in mysticism. Mm -hmm. You see, many of those uh, humanists are very much against. Uh, uh, new Age practices, which mm -hmm. they think is, uh, uh, you know, a denial of reason, denial of, of rationality. One of the things I feel that inadequate attention is given to 
is uh, the whole question of language learning and television. I think one of the great corruptors of vocabulary in recent years has been television. If you think back to the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the average student was not only literate, but his vocabulary was fairly good. You have to remember, of course, that when I went to school in the 20s and 30s, the uh, average student was subjected to a great deal of poetry. And poetry is superb in teaching people the rhythm of language and the beauty of language. For example, a month or so ago, Dorothy and I were in Cajun country in Louisiana, the heart of the old Evangeline country. Coming back, it was interesting to us how very few people who were below 60 knew anything about Evangeline. And that was a bit of a shock because everyone of our age had been exposed to Longfellow's poem, This is the Forest Primeval, and so on. And the beautiful and very sad tale of Evangeline, yes. going back to 1750 when, with the French and Indian War, the French settlers in Arcadia, Newfoundland, Newfoundland, were transported and dumped at various ports in the American colonies. And some of them struck out across the wilderness for Louisiana, knowing it was French territory. And people were separated at times from their loved ones. Well, we were exposed to good literature and to poetry and we knew the English language. But today, the jargon and uh, corrupt patois yes. of uh, television is routine on oh, yes. television. And most children learn more from television than they do from the modern public school. Right. The result is we have a situation of uh, very great decline linguistically. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, that's one of the great uh, terrible things that's happening to our culture is this decline in vocabulary, yes. in use of words. And there was, a, um, there was an organization that counts, that does a, a research on, on language usage on vocabulary and they've come to the conclusion that Americans are losing vocabulary at a rate of 1% a year. Mm. That the vocabulary of the average American is shrinking. And uh, I remember reading an article about that in a, in a Dallas newspaper in which he said that the people who rise to the highest levels in government and industry are those with the biggest vocabularies. The yes. vocabulary plays a very important role in how one fares in life. Mm -hmm. People, uh, adults, are no longer ashamed to spell poorly. 
Well, I know. Even teachers can't spell these days. That's the horrible thing about it. Because the old adage, readers will be leaders, you see. Yeah, absolutely. Think, uh, critically, and uh, that's really lost. Reader, you're right. Readers will be leaders. Now, I happen to be tutoring a youngster. Uh, I was asked by these friends of mine in Concord, Mass., to, uh, to tutor their son, Bond, who was in the first grade. Uh, he was being very poorly educated. As a matter of fact, he was, he couldn't read because they were using whole language in this class. So all he was doing was guessing and, and looking up in the air and all kinds of things. And so his mother wanted me to teach him to read. Well, I started teaching him to read and I, I was almost in a, in a despairing of his ever being able to learn because, I mean, it, it was so difficult for him to just focus his eyes on the, on the letters. But the only way I could get him to focus was to have him spell the word. You know, so he'd have to actually look at the letters. And he would squirm and he was all all over the place and trying to look at the words the sideways and upside down. And finally, gradually, I was able to uh, break down that these awful habits. And now he's an excellent phonetic reader. He still has a few little bad habits, and I keep stressing that accuracy is more important than speed. But the point I'm making is this. What I do with him is I have him read books that were written in the 1850s and 60s because the vocabulary is richer, the sentences are longer. And here he is now in second grade, and he's... And we started reading a book that I told him that only high schoolers can read. And so he was quite, now he wants to read that, you see. So progress can be made, but he would have been a basket case had he remained in public school. And yet I realized that the only way to, to enhance his literacy is to have him read old books. Like, for example, the Henty books. One of these days I'm going to introduce him to uh, the Henty books, which are very rich in vocabulary, and tell excellent stories. Uh, that's where we get our vocabulary from. Rush and I got our vocabulary from books, from yes. reading. We didn't get it from the radio. We didn't get it from right. from the playground, and we we didn't get it from our parents. My parents didn't even speak. You know, they spoke broken English, so I didn't get it from them. We got it from reading Shakespeare and from reading Milton and reading the, uh, Dickens and reading great works of literature. That's where you get vocabulary. Yeah. And all of that is gone. Well, in the 1940s into the beginning of the 1950s, I was a missionary on an isolated Indian reservation. They spoke at home and on the playground and everywhere else either Paiute or Shoshone. English was a school language or a church language. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing was, because the radio reception was meager and poor, and this was before television, the English of these children was school English. It was good. Mm -hmm. And... In recent years, as I have seen the deterioration of spoken English by young people who come from generations of American background, mm -hmm. I'm appalled. Yes. They do not speak as well as those Indian children did. 
and I'm sure those children have been corrupted in their speech nowadays. But uh, we have a language crisis. Ours is a civilization that depends on literacy. The reading of the Bible is diminishing in many circles. Newspapers are shutting down one by one in many cities across country because of a lack of readers. And so we have a crisis of the English language. That's true. And, and, but the point is, you see, the, what the educators are saying that, well, reading is as, isn't as important as it used to be because you've got all this oral communication and visual communication and image communication so that really the written word, what they have done is downgraded the value of the written word. And of course, the big secret is, however, is that if you want to become a member of the elite, you have to be literate. Yes. So you see, this is the, this is the, uh, you might say the strategy of the mm. elite. Yes. To, uh, keep things for themselves, to dumb down everybody else, and to reserve true literacy for a very small group of people. You take, for example, Bill Clinton. I don't think much of his politics or of his ideology, but he's a good reader. Mm-hmm. He's got good vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he does with it is unfortunate, but uh, he knows how to read. You know, they're, they're writing in a code that's hard to decipher. You read uh, business communication, political statements. Uh, oh, yeah. They're virtually written in a code that the average person can understand. Uh, mm-hmm. ju- judicial decrees, uh, any legal document. A lot of academic insurance policies. Right. The average right. person, you know, they're they're being worked over by all of these groups, yeah. and they they don't know uh, they can't understand it. That's right, Sam. It's sort of the revival of the bread and circuses for the masses, you know. That's right. That's right. For example, this whole business of the Rhodes scholarships. Mm-hmm. There, they recruit the highly literate youngsters out of American schools. And then they ship them over to England where they're indoctrinated in this, uh, you know, this Rhodes vision of a new world order. And then they're sent back to the United States to become members of the ruling class. Yes. And if you look throughout the, uh, the court system, Supreme Court judges, senators, presidents, yes. Rhodes scholars. I mean, you have such a high concentration of Rhodes scholars now in in uh, in the in the government and in uh, places of power that uh, that they understand the value of literacy and back in the old days uh, when you had uh, hieroglyphic writing and you had ideographic writing the power was held by the scribes and the priests mm-hmm. and the scholars who had command and control over the written language yes, you see right. and they could rule they could tell the rulers the emperors what to do because they were you know they had access to the written record and that same thing is is happening now we're getting this elitist control of of the written word and twisted in any way they want and the rest of the population is being dumbed down and, and being subjected to television and bread and circuses, as you say. And that's why the elitists consider phonics such a threat. Absolutely. You mentioned the other night in the lecture here yeah. in Murphy's about this article 
that uh, the reintroduction and the revival of phonics is somehow a right-wing conspiracy or something. Exactly, exactly. You see, and that's why the homeschoolers are going to be so far ahead of the rest of the American population because they will know how to read. Pretty soon, personnel agencies will have a separate department, just people that they can farm out that can read. (laughs) Well, it's happening, and uh, of course, uh, you know, the the excuse they give is, well, with all this new technology, you really don't have to know how to read, you see. Mm -hmm. Why? You know, with with word processes and all of that. But you can't handle all of that without a knowledge and command and mastery of the language. I mean, at least to read the manual. It's all based on language. I mean, the yeah. computer is based on language. Yes. And a mastery of language. And those who master the language will master the culture. I was pointing out the other night, Neil Postman wrote his book, I told you, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Yeah. In which he demonstrated how the, our Western culture is being transformed from a word-oriented to a visual-oriented right. uh, culture. I think he talked... He gave one example of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and he compared them to modern presidential debates. I mean, there were substantive issues dealt with in those debates, and they were well attended, and people would hang on every word. Whereas today, the important thing is, you know, how much powder is on the nose, and turn the head the right way, and is your hairstyle properly, you know. And the sound bite. And the sound bite, yes. And so they don't really convey much of any, no, any substance. If you were to go back and read those debates, apart from the visual effect, that you would find out there's virtually no substance to them, the, the modern debates. Sam, I want to ask you a question. There seems uh, the history of the 20th century seems to hold a lot of uh, uh, instances. Uh, there's a thread that runs through all of the dictatorships of the 20th century of the indoctrination of the youth. How far is this a 20th century, strictly a 20th century phenomenon, or does this go back in the history of education? Well, I, I'd say it was always known that uh, that you know that Plato certainly in his Republic. I mean, the very important part of that whole plan was the education of the youth. I mean, Christians have always known that, so that the young people had to be. Educated in in the knowledge of the Lord and in the Word of God. I mean, that's always been pretty well understood that education does shape a child's future. So, if you wanted to create a socialist dictatorship in this country, then that would be absolutely necessary to carry forward this indoctrination of the youth. Well, you know, the interesting thing about that is we're get the kind of dictatorship we're getting is one of consensus. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than you know, uh, and and one of fear. Uh, for, take for example what happened in Waco, was meant, simply meant to put the fear of the government into people, mm-hmm. uh, to tell them, hey, if you don't behave yourself, this is going to happen to you. And most Americans got the message. Uh, take for example what happened in Oklahoma uh, City, with that uh, bombing. Nobody knows really who did it and why it was done. Uh, all they have is some people in, in custody that uh, uh, are implicated. But what was the result of that? What did the government do? It immediately accused the right wing. It yes. accused all of us mm-hmm. of somehow being responsible for what happened there. And so that put fear in us. As a matter of fact, I was invited to speak uh, at a uh, meeting of uh, of the New Hampshire militia, mm-hmm. and the reason why I was invited because they wanted somebody to speak on education, and so I had to think twice about that. I said, 
my heavens, with the climate of fear that we have, with this sort of, you know, whipping up the American people in this, into this hysteria about the militias, should I go there? And I said, if I don't, if I hesitate because I'm afraid, they've won, you see. I am not going to let them put the fear into me. And I went up there and I had a wonderful time. It was held in this tiny little town. In, in, in northern in, in New Hampshire and uh, you know th this town was the size of Vallecito mm -hmm. and and the press the entire press of the world was there the New York Times <laughs> the Boston World <laughs> Time magazine all the cameras and they were looking where are the guns where are the guns well nobody had any guns <laughs> this was an educational meeting mm -hmm. you see but the press I mean, and we began to ask, who's paranoid? Yeah. <laughs> Who are the paranoids? <laughs> They're the ones. They're the ones who are seeing a militiaman under every bed. <laughs> yeah. We had something far more powerful, ideas. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But we had ideas, and it was an excellent meeting. I enjoyed it very much, and uh, it was wonderfully done, and surprisingly, we got very fair coverage. Good. Because the, the 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 reporters saw that there was really nothing mm -hmm. wrong, you know, and everyone was very articulate in expressing their ideas. You see, but Douglas has made a good point there. Uh, if we put in the hands of educators this power, then uh, they really can uh, form a tyranny, and yeah. uh, that we've really lived to see that to a large extent. Well, that's true. I mean, but we have to resist it. Yes. I mean, so here in this little town of Cornish, New Hampshire was uh, an exhibit of Americans exercising their freedoms regardless of this climate of fear. And I compared it to what the Germans did, the Nazis did in 1938, when this Jewish uh, youngster uh, assassinated a, a German diplomat in Paris. And the German, the Nazi government then uh, whipped up the people into this frenzy, and you had what was known as Kristallnacht, yes. yeah. in which the synagogues were burned, and the Jewish shops were just uh, destroyed, the windows were broken, you see the glass, and, and that was the crystal, the circle, that's where Kristallnacht comes from, all the, the broken, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, yes, the shop windows, shop windows yeah. and all of that whipping up the country and Clinton did the exact same thing yes we well, you know Tocqueville said that was that is the most dangerous tyranny which is not direct but which creates a climate in the country in which everybody's afraid to break the conformity well but thank God uh, the American people did not buy it that's right we have resistance and, and thank God that uh, that the people on our side refused to be intimidated it's a very important lesson we we learned that that we should not uh, cave into that kind of intimidation on the part of the government. Mm -hmm. And who knows what will come out of this Oklahoma City thing. It, it's First of all, whoever did it certainly wasn't it wasn't doing anything for our benefit. No, not it at all. It didn't help the right wing in any way. So, that you know, it's very suspect as to who did this. I mean, if they wanted to find a, a place where uh, strange things happen, it would not be in the militias, it would be at Fort Riley, Kansas, where all of these guys got to know one another. Right. God knows what they were doing in, in Fort Riley, Kansas, in the Army. Careful, I took I took basic training at Fort Riley, Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> we won't give them your name. Right. I got the shovel horse manure from uh, 
patents, uh, the stall where they kept Patton's horse. Oh, I see. Well, that was a long time ago, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, a couple of years ago. Well, Russ has made it clear over the years that we believe in regeneration and not a revolution, you know. Yes. So, uh, well, that's what's important about uh, the reconstruction. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what we're doing. And uh, it's important to provide that kind of uh, uh, leadership. That's right. You referred to the fact that... Uh, Americans are losing their vocabulary at the rate of 1% a year. How great is the vocabulary today? It used to be quite high yes. when I was young. It was estimated, uh, in certain parts of the country at least, to be 100,000 words. Then I heard years later 20,000. What is the estimate now? Um, well, I, I don't know. This The particular article that I read was published in the uh, 70s. Oh. So here it is 20 years later, which mm-hmm. means we've lost another 20% of our vocabulary. But you can see it in, in, in how children speak, young people yes. speak. They come out of school, and I, I usually tell them, you know, they've got 20 words in their vocabulary, three of which are pizza, hamburger, and, you know, and... The rest only have four letters. And Mickey Mouse, and the rest have four letters, right. But you listen to a conversation of these kids, and they're talking about concretes, you know. Yes. They don't, they can't deal with abstraction. Conceptualization. Yes, they can't deal in philosophical ideas. While um, uh, a couple of years ago at a homeschool conference, where I had my little booth and I was sitting there, there were these two youngsters, Christian youngsters, having a very profound conversation on theology. They couldn't have been more than 13 years old. And I thought, my heavens, I mean, they're talking about ideas. Yes, that's right. And I hadn't heard that come out of the mouths of young people for so long that I thought that it would never occur again. It used to be a fact not too many years ago that uh, with drill retarded children could get through most of the courses in grade school very successfully but that when it came to anything beyond that their inability to deal with abstract ideas cause them to fall behind rapidly. Up to that point, they could be as good as any other child, often better. Well, now what we are seeing is the inability of intelligent children to grasp abstract thinking. Well, yes, they're turning our healthy children uh, into, uh, you might say, defective children. In other words, they are exhibiting the, the, the brain patterns of defective children who cannot handle abstraction. So, in other words, our educators have found the means to take perfectly healthy children and make them defective. Yes. Turn them into the intellectually walking wounded. That's it. And, and, and uh, if you look at the methodology being used in the schools, and you understand that these programs were devised by the world's leading behavioral psychologists. These programs were not devised by little old ladies sitting on back porches. No, that's right. They were devised by the world's leading psychologists who understand how the brain works. 
you would know that what they're doing is is purposeful. Yes. Uh, that it is, I call it a non-surgical prefrontal lobotomy. Mm-hmm. And it's performed in the schools through this look-say, whole language technique of teaching reading, which so damages the brain of the child that uh, most children cannot uh, function beyond that. In other words, some of the kids even regress in their vocabulary. They're not as even as good as they were because they fall back on what they can really uh, uh, handle, what, what they feel secure with. And that's why vocabulary so, sort of stops growing at the age of six in our society now. In a forthcoming <clears throat> issue of the Calcedon Report, I have a book review of a book by a man named Story on church music and how church music is regressing. It's taking its cues from uh, uh, rock music and the damage is being done thereby to both sides of the brain so that uh, it is a very critical situation. Well, our time is nearly over. Do you have any final questions or comments? I was thinking just a couple of minutes ago, Sam, about this myth of nonverbal intelligence uh, today, the real emphasis on uh, feeling as a matter of intelligence and relationalism. I noted that in some of the OB meetings, that uh, the rallies that were in Ohio, the idea that we don't think only in words. I think that's really a dangerous idea. It is, because words are the only thing we do think in. Yes, as yes. a matter of fact, the reason why you don't remember what you were doing at the age of two is because you didn't have the vocabulary, you see. Right. I know that's true, that words are basic to thinking, because <clears throat> I know, having been brought up speaking Armenian and then learning English at school, that about the time of college, my thinking shifted from Armenian totally to English. Oh. Up until that time, I would think in both languages, using uh-huh. apt uh, turns of speech and ideas. But at a particular point, I shifted over to English, and I realized how important words and language are to thinking. You cannot think without them. Absolutely. Did you find that the Armenian language sort of limited you in your thinking, and that because English expanded your thinking processes with an expanded vocabulary, that that's why the transition well, uh, was so... Uh, yes and no. It was facilitated. That my Armenian was family-oriented oh, yes. and yeah. church-oriented. Oh. So because of the Armenian Bible, yeah. I had uh, considerable uh, Armenian knowledge and vocabulary. Yeah. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Sam, for coming again, and God bless you all. Thank you.